Today, Rescuing the Needy. Hey, welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day and not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life. What a shallow substitute for what God wants for us. Well, as our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from folks who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and her message. Welcome. It's good to have you with us. Well, today we wrap up our series on missionary Gladys Aylward. As we hear about adventures in China, about answers from God, about how God called, but a man didn't answer. A little bit later, we'll hear that God's will is always possible, and about how messages recorded long ago can still be powerful today. Our guests, Mike Cantrell and Rachel Johnson. Well, this is program 101, and let's begin with the next to the last in our series on Gladys Aylward, Rescuing the Orphans, as we think about worrying without praying about adventures where there's no money, and how singing hymns was thought to chase demons away. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot continuing the story today of Gladys Aylward, the small woman of China. She has just received what she believed was a message directly from God that she must flee from the army in the war between the nationalists and the Japanese. She has to travel by muleback, and so she immediately needs to go and find the muleteers. And this may not be exactly the point in the story where this fits, because the story that I'm about to tell you is not in the book. It's a story that I heard her tell herself in Alberta, Canada. She was speaking to a large audience there, and she told us unbelievable adventures that she had had in China, and one of them was an an occasion when she had to travel through the mountains alone uh, with Chinese muleteers, men who managed the mule teams, and she had no money, and she realized that she was going to have to pay them, and she was going to have to pay for an inn uh, before this journey was over, and so she was extremely worried. Well, suddenly they came to a tunnel in the mountains, and the muleteers stopped dead and absolutely categorically refused to go through that tunnel. And she pled with them, and she argued with them, and they explained to her that the reason they could not go through the tunnel was that it was filled with demons. And she said, I don't believe that the demons are going to bother us. And they said, they will unless you will make enough noise to scare them away. And so she volunteered to do just that, and they went through the tunnel with Gladys, this tiny little lady, singing hymns at the top of her voice. And she had an unbelievably powerful voice for such a tiny little skinny woman. And so she sang, and they made their way through the tunnel, but when they got to the other end of the tunnel, she said, there was a wind, and in the wind, and the moving of the leaves, there was a voice, and the muleteers were terrified, and they said, the demons have followed us through, and they are going to kill us. And I said to them, this is nothing to do with you, 
this is my God speaking to me. And what God was saying to her was, with reference to that money that she was worried about, you have not because you ask not. And suddenly I remembered that I was worrying, but I had not been praying, and I had forgotten to pray for the money. And God took us safely through the end of that journey. When we came to the inn, I still had no money, but there was a letter waiting for me. And in the letter was sufficient money to pay for the muleteers and for the inn. And now she's beginning to flee with this crowd that she has been asked to take. Madame Chiang Kai-shek had an orphanage for war orphans. She had 200 who now needed refuge. She managed to find someone to take 100 of the children to safety, but she sent a message to Gladys Aylward that she needed her to take another 100 children. David Davis, a fellow missionary, had taken his family to safety in Chi Fu. He had walked 1,000 miles. It took him two months to come back to the mission where Gladys Aylward was working. It was his responsibility now. He took over the mission, but he insisted that she must leave with the 100 children that Madame Chiang Kai-shek was asking her to take. The general sent her a message. She must retreat with him to safety. Her reply to the general's message was, Christians never retreat. The second message was, you must come. The Japanese have put a price on your head, $100. Three people were wanted, a Mandarin, a businessman with nationalist leanings, and the small woman, captured alive. It was the second time that she had received this message, and she believed that surely God must be saying something to her. So the great expedition with 100 refugee children began. They were able to sleep their first night in a temple. They found that all the priests were away. They had with them millet to eat, and that seemed to be just about all they ever had, millet being a kind of grain. And, of course, they carried an iron pot for cooking, and they drank what they call twig tea. I can only assume that it was made out of twigs from a tree, probably not terribly flavorful, but millet and twig tea seemed to be all they ever had. And the man on the mule offered shelter in his courtyard. So the Lord took care of them that first night. The next morning, the two millet carriers had to go back to their village. They were not allowed to leave the province. And so the man offered his own coolie to carry it. It might last for two days. So they spent the next two nights out in the fields. There were two older boys who went ahead and marked the trail with whitewash and put Bible texts such as, This is the way, walk ye in it, or fear not, 
little flock. They were terribly thirsty as they traveled. There were wells only in the villages, and some of the villages were many miles apart. They had used up all their millet, and they were in the mountains among very steep slopes, so steep that they had to create a human chain to pass the young children down hand to hand. And they were singing a song, I Will Not Be Afraid. And I remember being taught that song when I was a student in a high school boarding school. And this is how it went. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will look upward and travel onward and not be afraid. He says he will be with me. He says he will be with me. He goes before me and is beside me. So I'm not afraid. Picture this tiny little woman from London, 100 Chinese children, trailing along over the mountains and singing that little song. Does it bring tears to your eyes? There were several older children, and they, along with Gladys, had to carry nearly all the bedding. The other children were too small. There were seven knights. They all wore shoes made of cloth. You can imagine the state that those shoes were in after seven days of walking. Their feet were bleeding, and the children were crying. And suddenly, there was a shout, soldiers. Of course, they didn't know whether it was Japanese or nationalist. To their great relief, they discovered that the soldiers were nationalists. And then the roar of two Japanese fighter planes went overhead. They tore through a cleft in the mountains and thundered overhead. But the children were not harmed. The national troops began to feed the children, and they shared a feast such as they had not seen in years. Gladys explained to these soldiers that they were refugees trying to reach Xi'an. Her Chinese was excellent, though she spoke with a heavy dialect to the north. But although she was small like his own countrywomen and her hair dark, he knew she was a foreigner. This will soon be a battlefield. Don't you realize that, he said. All China is a battlefield, she said wearily. Are you in charge of these children? Yes, I am in charge of them. We are trying to cross the river. He looked at her directly. She was quite a young woman. Her dark hair was scraped back into a bun. Her clothes were old and soiled. There were dark circles under her eyes. Her face had a sallow, unhealthy look. You are a foreigner? Yes, I am a foreigner. For a foreigner, you chose a strange occupation. She looked steadily at him, and he said, I think I can get you a boat. We'll need three journeys to take you all across, and it is dangerous. If a Japanese plane comes over, when you are halfway across, there will be little hope. We must cross the river, she said. You will probably manage to get food in the village on the other side. The people do not like to leave their homes even when the Japanese come. I understand, she said. It was like that with us in Yangcheng. He walked to the river edge, inserted his fingers in his mouth, and whistled loudly three times. Of course, they managed to get across the river. 
And tomorrow we will finish our story about Gladys Aylward. Part 9 in our 10-part series on Missionary Gladys Aylward, Rescuing the Orphans. A little bit later we'll be hearing from Rachel Johnson, who works with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. Right now, though, it's Mike Cantrell as he talks about the productivity of Elizabeth Elliott. Mike, his wife, and daughter live overseas and serve on projects throughout Europe, Asia, and the U.S. As the digital media director for the foundation, I have access to quite a few files that most people just won't see. Uh, For instance, we have the ledger that Elizabeth kept of all of her talks, and it ranges from 1973 to 2001. When she returned from a speaking engagement, she would make an entry on a big, large, traditional-looking ledger, and she noted the date, the location, the topic of the talk, and other information. And you can see, actually, one of those scanned pages on our website by visiting the timeline and scrolling down to 1987. As I go through these files, it is remarkable to me how productive she was. In 1991, for instance, her ledger records 93 individual talks, and all of those are given in many different locations. Now, I also know from our files that in 1991, she recorded about 260 Gateway to Joy radio programs. So, 93 talks, 260 radio programs, and all this while she was writing other books and writing newsletters and responding to correspondence and cooking dinner and washing dishes and making the beds and all that. It is clear that Elizabeth was fully given to the ministry the Lord had entrusted to her. And, you know, she's a great example of how we as disciples can do God's work by his power in the time that he's given us. As she often said, it is always possible to do the will of God. Mike Cantrell. Thank you, Mike. A little bit later, we'll hear about recordings done long ago, but still powerful. Right now, though, let's wrap up our series on missionary Gladys Aylward as we hear the rest of the story about adult responsibilities and about getting 100 children across the river. I told a story last week that maybe I should repeat because to me it's just so charming, but it was a personal conversation that I was having with Gladys Aylward. The two of us were missionaries. I had lost my husband about four years earlier, and Gladys had never had a husband. And she told me how when she went to China, she had no thought whatsoever of ever getting married, hadn't even considered such a thing. But after she'd been there for a few years, a couple from England came out to work as missionaries, and she observed their life and realized that they had something very beautiful that she began to wish she had. And so, being a no-nonsense sort of a person, she prayed, and she just asked God to call a man from England, send him straight out to where she was, and have him propose. And then... She leaned toward me on the sofa and pointed her bony little finger in my face. And she said, Elizabeth, I believe God answers prayer. He called him, but he never came. Is there a man listening to me today whom God might be calling to get married? 
there just might be. You know, the Apostle Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. It bothers me to see that too many men today are spending lots of money and huge amounts of time on adult toys, Um, all kinds of vehicles, all kinds of amusements, all kinds of fitness, machinery, etc., etc. And it just might be, if you were to stop and listen for the still small voice, that God is calling you to take adult responsibility and to become a husband. Well, that's just one of my little parentheses that I can't resist putting in every now and then. We left Gladys Aylward with her 100 children at the edge of a river. They didn't know how they were going to get across, but a nice man came along, inserted his fingers in his mouth, and whistled loudly three times in a peculiar, piercing way. From across the river came three answering whistles. Two little figures far off on the other bank pushed a boat into the water and began to scull it across. I cannot thank you enough, she said. I thought it was the end of us when we couldn't cross the river. The young officer saw her sway a little as one of the children pushed against her. He looked at her curiously. You are ill, he said. You should find a doctor. The nationalist troops on the other side of the river will have a doctor. I'm all right, she said. When we get to Siang, I shall be all right. With shouts of glee, the children filled the boat. Soldiers ferried them rapidly to the other side. They returned, and more of the children piled in. On the third journey, the soldier helped the foreign woman into the boat with the last group of children. His platoon had gathered around to help. As the boat moved away from the bank, he called his men to attention and gravely saluted. He called, Good luck, foreigner. He turned to walk back along the bank to his platoon. As he walked, he looked into the sky and listened for the drone of Japanese planes. None came. It was curious about that foreigner. If this had been close to a large city or a settlement, he could have understood it. But wandering across a battlefield, escorting an army of ragged Chinese children? This was indeed very curious. Well, she got the children to safety. And by that time, she really was very ill. The flies were buzzing about the room, a strange room, with a clean bed and a small bedside table and limp, bright-colored curtains at the windows. Where was she? What had happened? They tried to tell her. She had been brought to Sing Ping in an ox cart by some peasants and to Siang in a private railroad car. She had lain for days and weeks close to death. But now she could not remember those weeks. And she thought that perhaps when she was so sick in the strange village home, the Chinese women had become frightened and had persuaded peasants to take her to the mission in their cart. There and in Siang, the senior physician had taken care of her and the nurses and a great many friends. She wasn't going to die, and she had saved the children. Gradually, while she lay in the hospital bed, all this became clear to her. The children were safe. They had food and clothes and even schooling. They had cried when there was no boat to take them across the Yellow River, but now they were safe. As the days passed, she gradually gained more strength until presently the senior physician was able to arrange for her to be taken out of the house to a friend of his. 
in the country outside Xi'an. There, and later in the homes of other friends, they succeeded in nursing her back to some state of health, and she could return to Xi'an, although she was still not really well. Linan, this is the man with whom she had fallen in love, a nationalist Chinese who wanted to marry her, came down to visit Xi'an, and she was glad to see him. He implored her to marry him and go with him to Chongqing, where he was now stationed. But somehow, away from the mountain country here in Xi'an, their relationship had altered. She did not know what it was, only that things were different. She knew that if the war had not driven her out of Shanxi, she would have married Lin'an, and her life would have taken quite another course. Wait, she had said then. We cannot get married while this terrible war is on or while we are here fighting. He had waited, and now it was too late. Now, instead of that inner exaltation, the rounded delight of knowing that she loved and was loved in return, there was this nagging anxiety to do the right thing by her God, her children, and the man she loved. Somewhere in the mountains between Yang Cheng and the Yellow River, somewhere in the plains between the Yellow River and the old capital of Xiang, Somewhere in the unreal world of delirium and the fevers of her illness, certitude had been replaced by anxiety. All this in tears, she tried to tell Linan. All this in the despair of his love, he tried to brush aside and say that it would be better when she was well. In Chongqing, he said, he would have high rank. They could make a home there and be happy. The children could go to school there, but it was no use. The colored bird had flown away. Perhaps it could not live in the forest of deep despair that grew all over China. There was so much work to be done for the Lord, and she, the small woman, the small disciple, had her part to play in that work. She said goodbye to him at the station outside Xi'an and walked back through the narrow streets with an overwhelming ache of loneliness in her heart, aware that she would never know completely if she had acted wisely or not. Only that, through all her waking days, she would remember Linan as the one man she had loved. The war swept him away, and she never saw him again. Gladys Aylward is shy and very modest. She carries these things in her heart. She rarely speaks of them. A little parlor maid from London traveled alone across Siberia because of a single letter from a woman whom she had never met. That woman, of course, was Jeanie Lawson, the 74-year-old woman who died not very long after Gladys arrived. A young girl, Gladys, lived alone for years in a remote mountain city, speaking a strange language, wearing native clothes, becoming friend and counselor to a people so foreign in thought and culture that at first their every custom seemed alien. A single-minded and determined girl conversed for hours with a learned Mandarin as he propounded the intricate subtleties of his philosophy. Yet armed only with her own forthright experience and inspired intuitions, 
she converted him finally to Christianity. A woman, tireless and fearless, traveled alone month after month through the dangerous mountain regions of Shanxi on errands of mercy and errands of war. This woman was Gladys Aylward, Ai Wei De, the virtuous one, the small woman. They will not forget her in Shanxi, and those who have known her since will not forget her either. For Gladys Aylward is one of the remarkable women of our generation, possessing an inner exaltation and an abiding tenacity of purpose that can make anything possible. Even a trip across the wild and pitiless mountains of China, without money, without food, and with a hundred children. And that's the end of Alan Burgess's book. I just want to say that that woman made an indelible impression in my life. I met her probably a few years, just a few years before she died. I think she died in the 1960s. The Bible tells us that we are to imitate the faith of our leaders. I encourage you to read Christian biographies so that you can see the hand of God in all the ups and downs, the sorrows, the joys, the perplexities, the dangers, the disasters of one individual life. It'll help you to trust Him. The conclusion of our 10-part series on missionary Gladys Aylward. That was called The Rest of the Story. Well, speaking of the rest of the story, we do have one more guest, Rachel Johnson, who's the Creative Media Director for the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, overseeing a team doing social media posts and publishing devotionals and newsletters. Every single time I go to do my job, which for me specifically, you know, I, I'm responsible for um, the daily social media posts and um, things of that nature. And every single time I go to find a quote or a photo to post or, um, you know, type in the devotionals for that week um, from, our, from one of our team members, um, I'm just so encouraged. And the opportunity to, I would say, almost daily sit under her teaching that was taught, you know, 30 to 50 years ago is when she actually spoke it. But to see the Holy Spirit use it to still speak into my life, it's just such a great privilege to be able to um, continue to learn from Elizabeth daily and um, be impacted by her message, which was to trust and obey and that um, God will use suffering for good and um, that he never leads. He, it leaves. He's always, you know, that, that tender shepherd leading and guiding us. Rachel Johnson, thank you. Well, our time together has come to an end just about, but before it does, let me thank you for coming along with us. I don't think that I'm going to be rewarded when I get to heaven for the books I've written or the talks I've given nearly so much as for the hidden faithfulness. And that, of course, is what I need your prayers for, that God will make me the kind of woman that I aim at, the kind of woman I talk about, but a woman like Mary, as this passage says, one who put herself without reservation of any kind at the disposal of God himself.
Well, on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. Elizabeth with an S, elizabethelliot.org. Well, until next time, may God remind you every day that you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are those everlasting arms.